Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and this month... The Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast is going to be focusing on long COVID. We are talking with people living with long COVID. We are going to talk about rehabilitation as it pertains to those living with long COVID and also some recent research around long COVID. So I'm very um, humbled and grateful for the guests this month because they are being very vulnerable and open about their time living with long COVID. So I just want to put that out there, a very big um, dose of gratitude to all of my guests this month. And who better to kick off this month than Darren Andrew Brown. He is a cisgendered, pronouns he, him, gay white man of English and Irish heritage living in London, UK. He is a clinical and academic physiotherapist specializing in HIV, disability, and rehabilitation. Darren leads the HIV Rehabilitation Service at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, Europe's largest HIV center. He is the vice chair of rehabilitation and HIV association, HIV AIDS coordinator of World Physiotherapy Group, IPT-HOPE, and steering committee member of Canada International HIV Rehabilitation Research Collaborative. Darren was awarded an NIHR-funded Master's of Clinical Research in 2019 and continues to conduct both quantitative and qualitative research about disability and rehabilitation among people living with HIV in the UK and internationally. Darren continues uh, to contribute to national and international programs focusing on disability inclusion across all responses to HIV. Darren contracted COVID-19 in March 2020 and continues to live with long COVID. He is a patient advocate for long COVID healthcare and research, calling for the greater involvement and meaningful engagement of people living with long COVID in all responses to COVID-19. Darren founded and is the executive director of Long COVID Physio in November 2020, an international peer support education and advocacy group of physiotherapists living with long COVID. Darren is an invited speaker contributing to World Health Organization guideline development groups on COVID-19. Now, today in this podcast, we are talking about the World Physiotherapy Response to COVID-19 Briefing Paper 9. The link to it is at the podcast website, and it's safe rehabilitation approaches for people living with long COVID, physical activity, and exercise. So I just want to thank Darren so much for being so honest and open and for giving us so much great information um, from this paper, of which he is the lead author. Um, And the thing that amazes me is he just knows all of this. I asked him afterwards, do you have any notes? He said no. So keep that in mind. This was a note-free interview with Darren. He is amazing. And I just know you're going to all learn so much from this interview and from the upcoming interviews this month. And keep this date on your calendar. 
August 30th. It's a Monday at 3 p.m. We are going to be having a roundtable discussion on long COVID with all of my guests this month. So that's Ted Lachance, Daria Oler, Darren Brown, and hopefully one other special guest will be joining us. So again, that's Monday, October, or Monday, August 30th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So mark that on your calendar. We will keep you updated once the link is up for you to sign up for that. I highly suggest you do uh, because I think this will be a really, really timely and educational roundtable talk. So huge thanks to Darren and enjoy today's episode. Hey, Darren, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on today. Thanks so much. Hello, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So this month, we are talking all about long COVID. So people living with long COVID symptoms and also what long COVID is, at least Mm. what we know now, what we know at this present time. But before we get into all of that, and before we talk about the, uh, the World Physiotherapy Briefing Paper 9, which we will have a link to in the podcast notes, Um, I would love for you to let the listeners know a little bit more about you and why you are part of that paper and and part of this world. Yeah, so thank you very much for having me today. Uh, So my name is Darren Brown. Um, I'm a cisgendered gay white man of mixed English and Irish heritage. I live in London in the UK, um, hence my accent uh, for anyone that's not where I am. Um, I am both a clinical and an academic physiotherapist. And my background is uh, in the area of HIV, disability and rehabilitation. So specialised in that for a decade. Um, So I'm kind of used to the... um, Uh, chronic implications of viral diseases. Um, And I also happen to be a person living with long COVID. So I contracted uh, coronavirus acutely in March 2020. So as I sit here today, I'm of my 15th month after acute coronavirus. Um, And I am currently sitting here today in a really stable, good place with my long COVID. I am predominantly symptom free. However, it's been a 15 month journey and it's been a very episodic and up and down journey, um, which I'd be very happy to summarize for you if you thought that was useful. Um, so I, as I said, I contracted coronavirus last year. Um, I went back to work pretty quickly actually and I ended up working full time for six months, which included being redeployed to various sectors, including intensive care in response to the pandemic. Um, had some ongoing symptoms, but in September last year I crashed. Um, and I ended up being off work for two months and the crash lasted for about six months um, where at my most disabled I was bedbound and flatbound and walking with a walking stick um, and my symptoms were multidimensional, episodic and unpredictable in their nature uh, with profound exhaustion, fatigue, brain fog. Um, I've had some respiratory symptoms, I've had cardiovascular symptoms, I've had urological symptoms and neurological symptoms and I'm under all of those physicians for investigations still. Um, uh, I then had my vaccination, my first dose in January, I got better, I returned back to work. Um, and then I was getting so much better, I started to do a bit more. Um, and unfortunately, I had a second crash. Um, but then I had my second vaccination, uh, felt a bit better. Um, and I've been continuing that journey since. So um, yeah, uh, it's been a very episodic journey. Um, But I'm also a co-founder of a group called Long Covid Physio. 
So long COVID physio was born out of the need for peer support amongst physiotherapists living with long COVID, both in the UK and the United States. But now um, it's evolved. It's now a, a global peer support group um, that also uh, provides uh, education in the context of uh, long COVID disability and rehabilitation, um, and also acts as an, on an advocacy level, um, which kind of brings us round to where the briefing paper came in really, um, because it was born out of a need for um, education and advocacy um, led by people living with long COVID. And, uh, you know, I think we spoke about this before we uh, started recording, but your background working with HIV that has multi-system, whole systemic bodily uh, implications, you said, well, with these the, co the symptoms of long COVID, you weren't it wasn't like out of the blue. It wasn't a huge surprise for you, but is it safe to say it was a huge surprise to a lot of other people in healthcare and out? So in the context of HIV, we know that um, HIV can be controlled with medicines, antiretroviral therapy. And when a person is undetectable, meaning you can't detect the virus in the blood because the medicines are working that well, people are untransmittable, meaning you can't pass it on. And when people are undetectable and they've been taking their medicines, people can live a normal life expectancy. But what we know with that is that people are growing older with HIV and they're developing other complications and people living with well-controlled HIV still experience issues, including episodic disability. So when this pandemic came out, there was quite a few of us that work in the world of HIV disability and rehab that were kind of anticipating, well, if people recover, there may be a risk that people will develop long-term consequences. So it wasn't surprising. I think what was surprising was that I was one of them <laughs> and actually how severe the disability was. Um, there are other groups of people that also were anticipating uh, a post-viral manifestation, particularly groups of people living with ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis, uh, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, um, and other people that have been living with post-viral complications uh, probably were anticipating there was going to be um, some form of uh, complications after acute coronavirus. But I think mostly the world has been caught off guard by this um, and maybe hasn't been prepared for the critical mass of people globally that are gonna be living with um, ongoing consequences after acute coronavirus, which is now commonly referred to as long COVID. Yes, and so now I think that leads us right into the briefing paper. So uh, like I said, there'll be a link to this in the podcast notes, but when you look at this briefing paper, there are a lot of contributors to this. So before we get into the meat of the paper, can you, give a, can you explain how you got all of these people together in order to write this paper? Yeah, so this briefing paper was specifically um, uh, brought together communities of people from different experiences. So the, the idea started with myself and a few other people um, that had expressed some concerns that maybe there was lacking guidance um, and policies and standards around the utilization of physical activity, which in, of all types, including exercise and sports, in the rehabilitation uh, of people who may have been recovering from coronavirus or living with long COVID. And so initial conversations were between some people that had already connected pretty much through social media. And when we got the kind of green light with World Physiotherapy that this might be something that we could work towards, we started to snowball our, our collective groups. 
it, this, this briefing paper has brought together over 50 different people from different geographical regions in the world. So all of the five corners of the globe, or four, four corners, but you know, five world physiotherapy regions have been represented here. So we've got people from Europe, North America, South America, we've got people from Africa, Asia, and Asia Pacific. Um, so we, we have huge diversity not only in where people are from, but also in their backgrounds. We've got people living with long COVID. We've got physiotherapists. We've got physicians and doctors that specialize in a range of different things, including physical and medical rehabilitation, also known as physiatrists. We've got occupational therapists, psychologists. We've got people living with ME. Um, the, the list goes on. And we've got such diversity because what was needed was a consensus here. What was needed was uh, diversity of thought, experience, both lived, clinical and academic, but also geographical to come together to say long COVID is not just affecting one place in the world. And this experience is not singular to, uh, to groups of people or people in certain locations. This is actually a unifying global issue. And the long-term consequences after acute coronavirus are gonna affect people around the world. And that's why it was so important that we had that diversity of the people that were contributing, but also diversity of experiences and thoughts because not everybody comes from the same background and with the same beliefs about all of this. And so we needed to bring that consensus together. And that's how we was able to develop a paper that was not only recommending caution, but was also recommending what can be done and also where rehabilitation is successful. Yeah, and I think, you know, for a whole systemic disease that COVID is, and it being global, it is important to have a whole systemic group of people working on this. So I just wanted the listeners to know it's not only physical therapists, or it's not only physicians, that this was a real collaborative world effort. So that being said, let's talk about what some of those key messages are, especially when it comes to safe rehabilitation of people with long COVID. So I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, so the, the way the briefing paper was written was to um, introduce key considerations when uh, rehabilitation specific to physical activity in all of its forms, as I said, including exercise and sports, when those key considerations need to be taken from a safety perspective before we prescribe exercise and physical activity. And I, I, I'm purposeful in my terminology there because we are health professionals that do prescribe our interventions. And so therefore we do need to have safety at the core of what we do. We know that there is currently not enough evidence or, or, or any evidence on the safety and effectiveness of physical activity and exercise as an intervention for people living with long COVID, but there's loads of indirect evidence. And there's also enough evidence in long COVID to give us the signals and clues as to which direction we could be traveling in. And so there was four key messages that came out in this. So the first was uh, before recommending physical activity as a rehabilitation intervention for people living with long COVID, individuals should be screened for post-exertional symptom exacerbation. Now, this is a term that's called different things. So post-exertional symptom exacerbation is something that I quite like, but it's also used by other groups sometimes more commonly known as post-exertional malaise, but can also be known as post-exertional neuroimmune exhaustion. Basically, in a nutshell, when you exert yourself, whether that be physical, cognitive, or social exertion, your symptoms get worse. So 
obviously before you get people to exercise, it'll be quite useful to know whether they've got that because you can't exercise your way out of a symptom, which is made worse by exertion. <laughs> and, and from a physical therapy, cause we're both physios so from that physiotherapy perspective, how do we screen for that? Is it a simple questionnaire? Mm -hmm. So this is where the briefing paper is really quite useful because obviously that's the first key message. Um, and the way the briefing paper is designed is that you have the, the key message and the rationale for that key message. So if anyone's now going, why have they brought that key message out in the briefing paper, there is an evidence-based rationale for that. And then off the back of that, there's an action. So each key message has an action point where clinicians and also communities of people living with and affected by long COVID can utilize these action points. So as you rightly said, there are ways of screening for post-exertional symptom exacerbation. Now, one of the best ways of doing that is actually a narrative approach, which is having uh, effective communication between clinician and the person accessing the clinician's care. So, one of the nice things about this briefing paper is it's also included the whole context of person-centered rehabilitation and the therapeutic alliance or relationship and how that's going to be an integral part of ensuring that safe rehabilitation is provided. Because if you can use a narrative approach to hear that people are experiencing this symptom, then it's a really good starting point. There so are other tools though. So are you saying that we actually have to make the time in our evaluation to speak with our the person in front of us to really get to know them and to ask more uh, narrative questions, motivational interviewing, not just yes and no and typing into a computer. Uh, now that's that's yes that's leading right so <laughs> but you know the average person probably listening to this is probably going of course I listen to my patients of course I communicate with my patients but but I think what it is it's about providing space for people to feel safe to provide the information that they can engage in so if if person-centered care is going to be a key pillar of rehabilitation, we must make sure that our patients feel safe to openly engage in rehabilitation with meaningful connections that are established with the clinician's knowledge, but also the patient's belief and knowledge of their own lived experience. And I think this isn't new to many people, but I think it's a really vital skill that we can harness in terms of delivering safe rehabilitation. Yeah, and everyone deserves to be heard and acknowledged and seen and given the space to do that. So as physiotherapists, we should obviously be doing this with every patient. Um, but when you're seeing patients who are living with long COVID, I think it behooves you to give them some extra space because I'm sure they have experienced people not believing them like you said, just exercise your way out of it. You'll be fine. And because a lot of people with long COVID, unless you maybe are walking with an assistive device, they may come in and look okay. Yeah, that's, that's the key point, isn't it? You know, uh, long COVID could be classified for many people as an invisible disability. Um, and certainly it's something that's experienced as, as not only multidimensional, but also episodic in its nature and also unpredictable. So someone may look okay one moment, but not another. And this is something that I've talked about from a lived experience of having the symptom of post-exertional symptom exacerbation, which is that it's, it's wholly invisible. 
to the majority of people. Because when I'm out and about and I'm doing okay, people see that I'm doing okay. What they don't see is the repercussions of that a day or two later where I'm laid up in bed because no one's around me when I'm laid up in bed and no one can see that. So it is truly an invisible symptom. And that's where people need to feel safe to talk about that uh, because a lot of people may not understand it themselves and may be very confused by this because my experience was I was totally confused as to what was going on with my body when this was going on. And I was very lucky that people were able to guide me through what the symptom was um, to understand it better. Yeah, and you're in the biz. So just I'm in the biz. <laughs> just think about those people who aren't, right? Yeah, I have, a head, I have a level of health literacy that is probably different to the general population. And I didn't have a Scooby-Doo what was going on with my body. Um, I thought I was doing the right things to try and rehabilitate myself by gradually increasing my activities. What I thought was dependent on my symptoms, but I had zero clue what my symptoms were doing because they were all over the show. Yeah, um, yeah. But there are some tools to screen for this as well. And that's within the briefing paper. So there is a range of different questionnaires is um, and actually specifically within the the, the briefing paper there is a, 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 a box which actually has these 10 items that you can use um, and it tells you how to score it how it links it to the evidence-based research which comes from ME and CFS um, hasn't been validated in long COVID I'm sure that work will happen but it's a tool that could be useful there has been some research already that's come out of Calgary in Canada which has used this tool specifically in long COVID. And actually that was published as a preprint literally the day after this was published. Uh, so uh, it's not included in the briefing paper. And that's a sign of how fast this research is moving. But um, a very high percentage of people are scoring um, as the, the threshold for experiencing post-exertional symptom exacerbation when living with long COVID. Um, so it's there, it's prevalent. Um, it's an important consideration um, because uh, what we know is that a graded exercise therapy program, which is incrementally increasing the amount of activity you do, irrespective of your symptoms, has been shown to cause harm in other populations of people, particularly MECFS, that experience post-exertional malaise. And at our heart of what we do, rehabilitation should be there to support people. It should be nourishing. It should be improving functioning and it should not be causing harm. And that's where that narrative approach is useful because when we provide interventions, we need to provide the safe spaces for people to tell us that it might not be working and not allow people to feel that it's their fault that it's not working because they've got this symptom. Yeah, so, so, so important. We don't want to place the blame on someone for something which they have no control over, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think as, as physiotherapists, we have to check our biases. Mm -hmm. We have to understand that when this person comes in, I mean, we all have biases. We, we're, that's how we are, you know, maybe not as a four-year-old child, but certainly as you grow up, you acquire these biases and you have to know as the practitioner to be able to recognize that bias and push it aside. Right. That, that's such an important point about implicit bias as well and unconscious bias, um, because I think actually wholly as a profession. Um, physiotherapy has an unconscious bias, which is that the mantra exercise is medicine is within our bones. And I think as a profession, it's quite hard to hear that exercise can't cure everything. Well, and but I think you kind of said this earlier is exercise is prescribed. 
So we need to prescribe it just like you would prescribe a medication by dose. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and sometimes guess what? That dose is zero. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Sometimes it's zero. You're prescribing it. So again, it's that exercise is medicine. Yes, it's a thing, but you have to know enough about the person in front of you to know how to prescribe it. Exactly. And that's where physiotherapists are so ideally placed to take on board these messages, this key message of screening for post-exertional symptom exacerbation, because we are good at prescribing physical activity and exercise interventions that are based within a rehabilitation model. And we are also good at knowing when not to prescribe. And I think that if we're given the tools to be able to identify this symptom, recognize that there might be an adapted approach that's needed, um, that works with individuals, um, and potentially takes a stop, rest and pace approach, um, because pacing is not easy to do. Um, I'll say that from lived experience. Um, you know, there's, there's so much that can be done beyond the scope of just prescribing physical activity and exercise interventions. And I think that physiotherapists are so ideally placed uh, to be working along those lines and working with our multidisciplinary team colleagues. And this is where the big shout out to the OTs go because pacing's their bread and butter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Okay, so we've got one key uh, message is Mm. screening. There were four, right? Yeah. So what's number two? We went on a topic there, didn't we? Yeah. But it's important. I think that's probably maybe the most important part is to be able to screen and know the person in front of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the the second is about cardiac impairment. So what we know is that before we prescribe physical activity interventions, including exercise or sport, we need to exclude cardiac impairment. Now, there is enough evidence to demonstrate that people that have had coronavirus and people that are living with the long-term consequences or long COVID can have cardiac impairment. And that can include things like pericarditis, myocarditis, even at mild levels. Now, we know that obviously there's a favoring for excluding exercise interventions for people that do have periomyocarditis for the safety implications, so reducing morbidity and mortality. Now, obviously, this is a safety message. We don't have enough evidence yet to say what the true prevalence of cardiac impairment is amongst people living with long COVID, what the safety implications are. But this key message is we must make sure that we are conscious of this because the evidence is indicating there's a risk and we need to be mindful of that risk. Right. So as a physiotherapist, if someone is coming to us with long COVID who has not seen a physician, has not seen a cardiologist, has not had a cardiac workup, it would behoove us to say, hey, listen, um, I think your next stop should be, let's get you to a cardiologist to evaluate your cardiac function. Depending on symptoms, certainly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if people are having um, disproportionate tachycardias on exertion, they are having strange cardiac symptoms, including changes to heart rate and blood pressure. They have chest pain, they have desaturations, you know, the classic cardiac symptoms that you'd expect you're not gonna try and push them through an exercise program. You're gonna encourage them to see a physician first. And I think that there is going to be many people living with long COVID that might not be going through um, specialist services for people designed for people living with long COVID And there may be many that come through the doors of physical therapists and physiotherapists around the world first. 
And so this message is there because we need to make sure that we are aware that there is a risk. Perfect. Okay. What's number three? So we know that the third one is around excluding exertional oxygen desaturation. So what we know is that COVID-19 can cause uh, interstitial pneumonias. And so we have seen this in other uh, diseases. So, you know, it can be things like pneumocystis pneumonia or PCPs. You see it in things like interstitial lung disease um, uh, or idiopathic lung fibrosis. Um, with these, they can cause uh, desaturations on exertion basically. And as the most safest thing, you want to make sure that your patient is not hypoxic when you try to exert them. So it's a simple thing. But what we know is that um, this is often something that may have happened to people during acute COVID, but it doesn't mean that they can't have it ongoing. And we are seeing people that are having pulmonary impairments. And sometimes these pulmonary impairments can manifest slightly later on as well. So it's just to be mindful of this. Um, so the World Health Organization does recommend, you know, that pulse oximeters are used to measure uh, that. And certainly in terms of long COVID services. So I'm based in England. So the long COVID services that are here do often utilize functional performance measures to determine if someone is exertionally desaturating. And they might use something like a sit to stand test um, or a 40 step test to see if somebody is exertionally desaturating or having disproportionate exertional tachycardias as well. But that needs to be finely balanced with point number one about post-exertional symptom exacerbation. Um, because obviously you don't want to put somebody through a test to determine if they're exertionally desaturating, if it's gonna cause them to end up in bed for a week. Yeah, absolutely. Again, why point number one was so important. So let's, go, <laughs> let's go on to point number four. So point number four is about autonomic dysfunction and orthostatic intolerances. So um, many physiotherapists might not be aware of some of these conditions. So for example, there's something called POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, which is where people change posture. They go from lying to upright. Their, their heart rates go really, really high. Um, and with that, they can have symptoms of presyncope or even syncope. Um, and also other orthostatic intolerances exist uh, where people can have uh, really significant drops in their blood pressure, again, causing um, issues with presyncope and syncope. So these dysautonomias are actually being seen to be quite prevalent in many people post-virally, potentially, um, when they're living with long COVID. I said potentially there because we don't really know what's going on with long COVID. Uh, so, um, so we are seeing there's a higher amount of that. And the American Autonomic Association has already published some guidance on that um, specific to long COVID. So the key message with this is if you've got somebody who, when they change position, may have a disproportionate drop in their blood pressure or a disproportionate increase in their heart rate, you probably don't want to be getting them doing a downward facing dog or sitting on an upright bike because the likelihood is they could faint or they could have a heart rate of 220. <laughs> so we need to think about that. Now, there are lots of existing research prior to even COVID existing about um, dysautonomias, including POTS. And there was all these protocols that existed. And actually some of the work that's come out of Mount Sinai uh, in New York um, has been looking at adapting those protocols uh, to develop something called autonomic conditioning therapy, um, which they've developed in the context of long COVID. Um, but uh, it's really important that we're aware of this. 
because if we're going to be looking at whether a physical activity intervention, including exercise or sports, is going to be safe and effective for our individual set in front of us, in the absence of evidence, guidance and policies and standards, we need to be aware that these things are happening and people are having strange symptoms, uh, including changes to their blood pressure and heart rates um, with changes in postures. Um, and the, the briefing paper is really clear on what it is, uh, what can cause it, how to measure it, and what to do if it's there. And so we've got those four key messages. We're not gonna dissect every bit of this briefing paper because that would be a whole weekend course, I think. <laughs> um, but for people that are listening, what, you know, as being one of the uh, authors of this paper, contributors to this paper, what what is that, that group's hope for people upon reading this paper? So I don't know that I can speak for everybody that was contributing to this, but I would imagine that the majority of people have the same opinion as me as the lead author of this, um, which is that we hope that this supports, firstly, communities of people living with and affected by long COVID when they are accessing care, which is they have a resource that they can take with them to their healthcare providers and have these open conversations and dialogues about what may or may not be right for me. I also think that collectively, we all really hope that this is going to support clinicians that are going to be providing care for people living with and affected by long COVID. Because we know that at the moment, a lot of people are looking for information and there's there's a lot of information that's either direct or indirect and sometimes it can be difficult to see the wood for the trees when there's that much information and so we're really hoping that this has consolidated over 180 citations into one document and every single citation has got a pdf link so you can access that literature yourself you can do your own research around it should you want to but we're hoping thirdly that this will be a starting point we're hoping this is going to be a starting point for hopefully international collaborations to work on these messages to de develop guidelines, standards and policies around that as the evidence continues to emerge, but also to guide the research agendas, because obviously there are going to be some people where exercise will work for them, but we need to know who they are and we need to make sure that whilst we're doing that research, that we have the safety messages at the heart of delivering that research too. So this crosses communities, clinical practice, policy, and also research. So I think the hope is that this has wide reaching impact. Obviously we need to see how that is, but this isn't the end of the journey. This is gonna have further iterations. This is a live document. This will be updated as more research comes out. But we hope as well that people will work with us as things move forward and looking at international collaborations because we know that it's interprofessional but also multi-sectorial collaborations that meaningfully engage and increasingly include people living with and affected by the health condition that leads to much more positive responses in all of the responses to that health condition. Yeah. And, and last thing I'll, I'll touch on here. And that's, I think what you were getting at at that last little bit is really looking at the social determinants of health and of the people who are affected by long COVID. I know I can say here in the United States that we know that African-Americans, um, Hispanics within the United States were much more affected by COVID than, uh, other, uh, other folks. 
And so can, might, might this also be with this international uh, collaboration across a lot of different professions, a way to really look at our um, social determinants of health and what can we do as healthcare providers and researchers and so on down the line to make sense of this mm. and to, um, to address this even in, in a small way. I know it's opening a whole can of worms, but no, you know I what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. And I think it's it's a can of worms that I'm prepared to go into. So, um, I, so yes, we know that in different parts of the world, um, obviously, uh, the people that are affected um, more by acute coronavirus has been disproportionately people of um, different ethnic groups. Um, so, for example, here in the UK, we are seeing it more amongst Black, Asian and minority ethnicity groups. Um, and we're also seeing it amongst different populations of people in terms of employment, but also in terms of socioeconomic status. So we know that health workers and teachers are more likely and people that drive buses, people from Black, Asian and minority ethnicity groups and people that live in deprived areas in the UK. But what's really interesting is we're not seeing that same demographic appear in terms of who's presenting in terms of the demographics of people that we are collecting data on in terms of long COVID. So what we're seeing in the UK, um, so with the Office for National Statistics, which is probably the most um, representative and largest uh, um, uh, epidemiological studies on long COVID to date globally, it's actually disproportionately young white women um, that are uh, of uh, relatively different socioeconomic status. Um, so I think the aims of uh, maybe a, an unintended aim, but hopefully a positive unintended outcome is that if more people are aware of some of these key indications of awareness, maybe some greater awareness of long COVID, the people that are probably more likely to get COVID are probably gonna also be more likely to get long COVID, but we're not seeing that come out in the data or the people presenting to those services. So we need to think about health inequalities in terms of the candidacy of people to access these services. How permeable are they to access? How, how is the adjudication between the individual and the healthcare providers to be referred to that? What's the individual's candidacy to raise their voice to say, I deserve to access these services? And at the moment, we know that um, structural racism exists, health inequalities exist, and people that experience structural racism often experience healthcare incredibly different to other groups such as white people. And so it's probably likely that many of these people may also be living with long COVID and not presenting to health services and not being counted. And this is a particular issue globally, which is that we're still not effectively counting long COVID. And so we don't know the proportionality of people affected by it and the need globally. So if this briefing paper has any way in contributing to more clinicians, more people being aware of some of the signs and symptoms of long COVID and particularly those key recommendations in terms of safety, if they can say, well, maybe you do have long COVID. It might be a way of identifying people that are more at risk, but also are more vulnerable to not accessing services. Yeah, perfectly said. I am in awe of your, uh, of your ability to succinctly and efficiently get big ideas across that allows people to understand better. So thank you very much for that. That was wonderful. Um, now, before we sign off here, where can people find you? They have oh, questions, they wanna know what's up. I love a bit of Twitter. So I'm on Twitter, I'm at Darren A. Brown. Um, also, uh, we've got our Long COVID Physio group at Long COVID Physio on Twitter. We've also got a website, Long COVID 
dot physio. Um, so they're probably the best ways. Very responsive on Twitter. Um, so um, yeah, I won't give out my email address. <laughs> no need, no need to be, no need to get that personal. Um, but I do have one personal question before yeah. we end. So knowing where you are now in your life and career, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh my God. So you warned me about this earlier, didn't you? And I am going to repeat what I said earlier. I was like, oh my God, this is like RuPaul's Drag Race, isn't it? There's going to be a picture of five-year-old Darren being held up. What would you say to baby Darren? Um, do you know what I would actually say, um, whether I was on RuPaul's Drag Race or not, uh, is the diversities of people bring out the strengths in others. And I'm a queer man. And I know that, my, and I'm now a person living with an episodic disability those things have made me a better person and enabled me to have conversations with my patients and the people that come and access my care in a completely different way that because of the lens that I've seen society and life. So if I was seeing myself as a younger Darren, I would have said, be proud in who you are, be accepting of who you are and know that your diversity, your differences, your quirks, your, your geekiness, your, dif- your things that make you unique, are going to truly make you unique when you're older and give you advantages in terms of how you navigate life, society, and your job. I love it. Thank you so much. That was so perfect. What a great way to end this podcast, Darren. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.